Well, we're going to try and explain some of the unexplainable today as we look into biology and biochemistry. And in this series, we're looking at how do you know anything? Now, philosophers had a big word for this called epistemology, but it really is how do you know if something's true? When your kids lie to you, when somebody makes a claim, a truth claim, an advertisement, there's really three ways that we deduce if something is true. One is reason. We say, hey, is what you're claiming and what you're saying true or does it have self-contradiction in it? It's kind of what Plato and Aristotle talked about. Let's use reason. The second thing is you're testing the reality of the claims. If somebody says something, that's their hypothesis, you then say, does that show up in life that way? Or is this just theoretical? Oh, okay. Can I see it in reality? The third way we've been looking at in this series as well is what I call reveling in wonder. There are certain things that when you hear it, somebody says it out loud, you're like, that's right. That's self-evident truth. That makes sense. You see it in a painting. Man, that is beautiful. Your soul connects to the beauty of it and the wonder of it. In fact, I think for me, one of the places I connect most to wonder is at Disneyland. I don't know if you've ever been to Animal Kingdom, but as someone who loves science, loves engineering, and loves art, I love going to several specific areas. I'm a sci-fi guy, so I love particularly going to the Avatar world. Have you been this before? You look up, and there are giant boulders the size of houses floating in the air at Disneyland. And you're like, now I know in the movie they float, but that's all blue screen. How are there houses floating above me right now? This is shocking. And then you come over to the other side, right? And you look from the other side. And it's like, sure enough, there is a monstrous-sized, house-sized boulder floating in the air. And you're, you're struck by a few things. The imagineering of the staff at Disney, like, man, they can create anything there. There's a magic to it. There's a beauty to it. There's an imagination piece of it. And then if you're kind of a scientist engineer, you're like, now how did they really do that? How did they really make I know rocks don't float. How did they do that? And if you go to the back room, they show how they built it. And their imagineers crafted this thing. So it's all held together as different pieces of metal. And then all of those vines are created to hide all the girders. So it's, it's designed to create the feeling of something floating and something up in the air like these other worlds you've seen in movies. But when you actually see what it looked like before they decorate with all the vines, it just looks like a giant metal contraption held together in a big, almost rainbow shape. But if you see something like that at Disney with your kids or grandkids, do you say to yourself, I think that just happened? Or do you say, obviously there's some artistry, there's some imagination, there's some engineering, someone really smart figured out how to do that, both the illusion side of it and the engineering side of it. We recognize craftsmanship. It touches our imagination and our mind. Well, I want to hypothesize today that God is a master craftsman and that he has wisdom in your life. We're going to look into your body, into my body, and see, do we see any craftsmanship? Do we see any wisdom that would have to be part of what we're going to find and what we're going to discover in your body today? And if it's true, and you might say, I don't think that's true. Well, we're going to look at what's plausible and what's possible. Anything's possible, but what's most plausible? It's possible that those rocks really are floating, I guess. It's possible that they just kind of fell and, and those vines happened to fit in just the right way and just stiff enough to hold that thing up. I guess that's possible, but it's not really plausible. And if God is a master craftsman, he has wisdom in your life 
And if that's true, he has wisdom available for your life as well. So we're looking at three firsts today. I want to propose that God was the first engineer. And the level of engineering we're going to find today in your body is dumbfounding. We're going to see God as the first coder. Coding's a big term today. We know. I got a son-in-law and a son who both worked in coding. We know how complicated it is. You get one letter wrong and the whole thing screws up. How complicated is the code that built you and built me? And thirdly, we're going to look at the cells. What happens inside of our bloodstream? What does it tell us about the craftsmanship of how it was put together? Let's start with, uh, with the first engineer. Now imagine you walk into a room. When you walk into a room, you see a certain parts. So there's a guy named Michael Behe, and he wrote a book. And the book was called uh, Darwin's Black Box. So you come in, and you suddenly see a battery sitting up here next to me. And you see a copper wire and a couple magnets. And you see this is actually a motor. This is a simple motor spinning around. You say, well, I guess it's possible that that battery fell there with the washer in place, with that copper wire and just the right movement to use the magnetic force and the battery to make it work. But if you've been with us for the last two weeks when Austin and I have tried to build this thing, you would say, uh-uh. Oh, my goodness. The, the level of change and modification that had to happen to create that was unbelievable. So irreducible complexity is the idea that there are certain things in your body and in life that have to be reduced down to their basic essentials, and you can't have one piece without the other. You need all of them interdependently. I'll give you another example, another simple motor. So this is a screw, wood screw, or a drywall screw hooked onto some magnets. We had to think about the weight of this compared to the magnification of these magnets up here and this battery. So I'm just going to hook this screw onto that battery. Then I'm going to take the power from one side and just touch it to the other. And suddenly we have a fully functioning miniature motor. Spinning so fast. Now watch, we'll do it again. Now again, you could say, hey, it's just a screw. Screws are simple. Hey, those are just magnets. I can find those in nature. You can actually say to yourself, hey, it's just a battery. I've seen batteries before. But to create a motor, you would walk into a room, walk into a space. You'd say, wow, that's an amazing motor. Where'd you come up with that? Where'd you learn that? How did you make that work? How's electricity working? And it's a simple motor made of a screw, some batteries, and some magnets. A battery and some magnets and one wire. But you would immediately recognize, even in its small, simple matter, you would say, that thing has been created. Someone crafted that. That would be a logical conclusion. Because a battery in certain places, the, the, the hole fits in just the right way with the washer, right? So here's my question. If we can recognize something as simple as a small motor had craftsmanship, or a fast motor had craftsmanship, is there anything like that in your body and mine? Is there anything in us that would suggest craftsmanship went into how we are created or how we were designed? Well, there's an interesting passage in Proverbs that God says that something existed from the very beginning of time with God. It's really strange, actually. Here's what it says in uh, Proverbs. Uh, next slide. It says that from the very beginning of time, God created all things. And it says that God, when he was making things, he possessed me. So wisdom is talking to us. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. This thing God possessed has been there before the works of old. Before he made anything, before he created anything, this thing, wisdom, was with him. I have been established, I wisdom, from everlasting. Now this is striking. Because only God is everlasting, philosophers would tell us. But this tells us that God who's everlasting had something with him that was everlasting called wisdom. Huh. So there's two everlasting things, 
that made the world. They existed before there was an earth, before there were depths that could be brought forth, before there were any fountains abounding with water. So there's God, and then there's this thing with God, who's also everlasting like God, who helped make all things. Hmm. He goes on. Before the mountains were settled, before there were hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had made none of the earth or none of the fields or even the primal dust of the world, huh? when he prepared the heavens, I was there with him. I'm eternal. I'm before all things. When he drew a face, a circle on the face of the deep, describing how he made the earth as a circle and as a sphere. And when he established the clouds above, he used or accessed me wisdom, and he assigned to the sea its limits, so we'd have land over here and sea over there, so that the waters would not transgress his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth. And what's amazing is you get to Jesus' life, and his buddy John is writing about him, and he says, the wisdom that you mentioned in Proverbs and the logos mentioned by Plato and Socrates, John says, I got to know Jesus. He is the wisdom that always existed with God. He was with God, but he also was God. And this mystery, how in the world does this personified wisdom that's eternal and God be the same place? And in Jesus, you find that he's claiming to be the logos, the craftsman, and the engineer behind all things. To which I say, all right, well, is there any evidence that there's engineering behind all things? He mentioned a few categories to look at. Let's look at motors again. Let's look at the motors and see if there's any craftsmanship. Let's talk about a Lamborghini for a second. So a little Q&A. If you're watching from home, feel free to, to answer as well. How many parts make up a Lamborghini? 10,325, uh, 2,750, 74,750, or 1,250. And wouldn't you recognize if you came across a Lamborghini with however many parts it has, you'd say, that thing had some craftsmanship. That didn't just make itself, right? So how many parts do you think a Lamborghini has? I guess? A. Anybody else? A. C. Correct answer. D. All right. And the correct answer is B, actually. 2,750 parts in a Lamborghini. And we would say, boy, if you got 2,750 parts, that didn't just make itself. The gears fit into certain places, the, the camshaft, the, the way the pistons work, the way the wheels turn. It takes so little for my brakes to break. And yet all those pieces clearly were put together. So how about the flagellum motor that exists in your body in a cellular level? A hair from a bacteria in your body has how many components? 37 components, 30,000 components, 4,500 components, or 279? Now look at the picture. Does this look like, this is in your body, it's got, just like an outboard motor, it's got a cell wall, it's got uh, rings, it's got rods, it's got L rings, it's got pieces that move and turn and twist. Well, the correct answer is the, the bacteria flagellum has 30,000 subunits. So 30,000 subunits make up this motor, and it's irreducible complexity. You can't make that motor run if one of the pieces gets taken at one. It needs all the pieces at once. That's what's called irreducible complexity. Now, how fast does a Lamborghini engine spin? What's its red line? 8,500 RPM, 3,200 RPM, or 4,675 RPM? We got a B, A. I wouldn't recommend you do it for very long, but the answer is A, 8,500 RPM. 
So, again, if you see a, a, a Lamborghini with about 3,000 parts that can go 8,000-ish, maybe 9,000-ish um, RPM, you would say, now that's been crafted, right? We just learned that the flagellum motors in your body have 30,000 subunits, and guess how fast RPM they can go? 100,000 RPMs. That motor can move at 100,000 RPMs. And you can fit 8 million of them in the cross-section of one human hair. Now, I'm losing my hair a lot, so I've, I've lost a lot of these motors. <laughs> Maybe you have too. But what kind of craftsmanship would it take to fit 8 million 100,000 RPM motors with 30,000 units, all which are interdependently needed and cannot exist without any one piece. Does that speak to craftsmanship? I guess it's plausible it wouldn't, but is it? Is it the most plausible explanation? Let me take you into a, uh, a cell for a moment. It's a guy who wrote a book. You might want to read it. It's a great book called Michael Behe called Darwin's Black Box. And he said that Darwin in his day was able to look through his microscope and they saw basically a big blob, a simple life cell. And because it was a blob, it seemed very simple. It seemed like that would be easy to create on its own, given enough time, given enough spark. But over time, our electron microscopes give us access to a whole world that is far different from what Charles Darwin saw. We don't have simple life forms. Quite the opposite. What we see under the microscope isn't just a cell, it isn't just a blob. Each one of the cells in our body is more complicated than the space shuttle. That's the level of intricacy. And just because it's smaller, it's just as detailed, just as complicated as what happens in the space shuttle. In fact, when you come across a cell, when you begin to study a cell, look into the cell, you might as well have stepped into a, an auto-making warehouse. Because in the cell, there are parts that are made coming in one door. There are people who fit it in just the right place at just the right time to assemble it into what needs to be created in the cell. There's parts, there's just-in-time processing, there, there's people who maneuver the pieces and places to the right part at the right time. So what, what Darwin might have seen, it might have looked simple, as we go deeper into it, we find something far more complicated. And the flagellum is just like that. In fact, one Harvard professor says the flagellum motor is the most efficient engine in the universe, moving at 100,000 RPM. Right now, we have magnified 50,000 times what the human eye can see. Look at those rotors. Look at that movement. Look at how the pieces intersect with one another. And what's amazing about it is that the, the engine that is running this thing, it can not only move at 100,000 RPM, but it actually can sense its environment. It's a motor that can sense where it is in order to maneuver and to change. And it produces its own gasoline because it runs on acid. And the acid that passes through it allows this thing to move as it's moving through the cell, producing all the different machinery. So if you came across a machine sitting out in the lobby or sitting in your house that looked like that, can move at that speed, is it possible it made itself? I, I guess anything's possible. But is it plausible? Is it the most plausible explanation? See, I said that there's wisdom from a master craftsman in your life, like literally in the hairs of your life, in your body. That is in your body. 
So you've got something more complicated and faster than a Lamborghini running through your body, millions and millions of them. And my thesis today, you may not believe it, that's okay, is that the master craftsman who has wisdom in your life, he might have some wisdom for our life as well. So he's the first engineer. He's also the first coder. So let's talk about DNA for a second. DNA is an incredibly complicated source of code. And I want to propose to you that DNA reveals a, a, not just a source of truth and information, but a loving source of information. So we're going to dig down into a little bit of the detail of DNA, but let's start with the big picture. Information always comes from a mind. Right? You have an idea, you have a thought, you have a plan. It always starts with a mind. Information always starts with a mind in every place you can ever see it in, in reality. So you have a mind. Mind produces information. Now that information needs to be communicated. So what do you do? You got an idea, you got a thought, blueprints for the wing, blueprints for your heart, and you got to communicate that. So you've got an idea in your mind. You can picture it. You now have information that came from your mind. Now you've got to invent a language. Think how hard it is to create a new language. So you create a new language, right? You create the language. Well, then you've got to find something to translate that language in the person you're trying to share with. So you need a translator. Then the person translates this language you just invented so they can get access to your information that came from your mind. And then that information that's been translated then needs to be stored someplace. And you're like, well, I got a lot of information. I got the blueprints for every part of your body. And this blueprint just for the eye has got level, several layers. You ever seen the architects work on a building, let alone for an eyeball? So you've got to take all this information, you've got to translate it, you've got to invent your own language to produce it, then you've got to store it someplace, it's a storage system, and then you've got to compress it so you can hold all this gigabyte, uh, terabyte of information into something this small. DNA does all of that. It's its own software and its own hardware program, and it all self-replicates. But I told you it was loving. So let's do a different analogy. Your mom's off on a business trip. You walk into the kitchen. You notice a note. It has information on it. You might say it's amazing how the letters assemble themselves, but it has my name. And it mentions that I have soccer I should not forget about on Tuesday. And it mentions that there's food in the freezer that I can cook by, what are the steps? Oh, number one, I need to put in the microwave or, or put in the oven for 30 minutes, pull it out. It's available Tuesday and Thursday. You would deduce from that information there was a mind behind it, and you would deduce from the information Someone cares about me. Someone loves me. Someone's looking out for me. When the same way, when you see the kind of information that is there and what it is designed to produce, you'd say, a mind had to produce the information because mind always produces information. And while somebody really loving had to put this together because this truth is designed for some purpose. In the same way, you might see that in your mother's note. It's a guy who studied the human DNA his name was uh, Francis. He wrote a book called The Language of God. In fact, I got a chance to interact with him slightly a couple years ago, so he wrote me a little note in the book. He said, Pastor Chad, thanks for equipping believers and creating a, a space at your church for welcoming those of us who are exploring. Uh, blessings. And in this book, he was the one who was in charge of the Human Genome Project. He'd been an atheist most of his life, and through science and studying of DNA, he came to be a believer in Jesus. Because the evidence of information was so startling, it spoke to complexity and love and care. But his initial journey, he said, began as a resident. He mostly taught in the classroom as one of our top scientists in the country. And then he was required to do some, some field work where he actually was interacting with patients. 
He said in his scholarly information and his atheism came face to face with reality. Because there are a lot of ways that medicine just can't fix certain problems. When he came face to face with those problems, he tells a story of being with this woman. She had a heart condition. By all evidence, she had maybe only a few weeks to live. He says, as I interacted with her, I realized that medicine had run its course. We didn't have anything else to, to fix or to offer hope to this. And I would just come in the day as I was doing my rounds. I said, how are you doing? And she said, well, you know what? I'm ready to die. I don't want to die, but I'm ready because I know where I'm going. I believe in Jesus Christ, God himself who came to earth. And he, he, he forgave me of everything I've done wrong. And, and I put my full trust in him. And I know that this life is a, a passageway into the next life. And he said, as she was kind of going on about this, a couple things struck him. Number one, that she really believed this. Two, it was really giving her hope in the worst of circumstances. He said, the other thing that struck him is that he, in his view of the world at the time, didn't really have anything to offer her that would help her face death, except, I guess she lived a good life. She finished sharing her story of hope, and he said, this woman looked up at him and said, doctor, I just shared some very personal things with you, and you didn't respond. <laughs> I guess that's how you address bedside manner. He says, what do you believe, doctor? And Francis says that that was the conversation that began him to ask himself, what do I believe, and is it the most plausible explanation for the universe in reality? Now, I get to see this firsthand two ways this week. I was with the family Friday guy who attends our church regularly at our 945 service is using the hearth room. George, he and his family are gathered together because he was on his final days, final hours, we didn't know. So I had a few minutes between appointments and I ran over to Bethesda Hospital and we gathered together and we held hands. I held George's hand, looked the family in the eye and we prayed. Passage from Joshua 1, that God is with you. I said, George, have, be strong and courageous. God's presence is with you and heaven is going into his presence. We finished praying hugged everybody, got in the elevator, and by the time I got to the car, I got a text, George passed away. That he was escorted into the presence of God, into hopes and promises, and his faith in Jesus gave him hope. I had another encounter this week with Justin. Justin and Stacy attend our church, but you probably haven't seen him in a while, because Justin has ALS. So he's slowly been becoming more and more paralyzed. So he's been texting back and forth with me on the WhatsApp app. He says, Chad, I'm not angry at God. This condition of ALS has brought me so much closer to God. Like, well, I'm angry for you, and I, how does that bring you closer to God? So he says, could you come over to our house? He says, also, I'd like to get baptized. I got baptized in front of people, but I was just going through the motions to make my kind of wife and family happy. Now I really know what it means to trust God, to know that he's truthful and, and what he has for me. And he, he says he's only got a few months to live. He can't move anything. He can only blink his eyes to say yes or eyes go back and forth to say no. So I came over and he just shared this incredible faith he has. He's got a screen up so he can use his eyes to, to spell out words and we could talk together. And so as we chatted this week, I was just amazed at the confidence he had in a God who was with him and had drawn him to himself in the midst of these circumstances. And he said, Chad, will you baptize me? 
I brought some water. We typically practice immersion, but we're going to do that. So I talked about the picture of the Bible's main message. You go under the water, and, and everything you've ever done wrong is buried with Jesus. And you come out of the water, you got a new life here and into the life to come. And so I took the water out, and I said, you believe in God the Father? And he could spell out the words, I do. I washed the water across his forehead and back. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the God who lives in you and loves you? I do. And do you believe in God the Father who made the heavens and the earth? I do. And for a person who can't communicate, he communicates so much. His eyes, with every time I touched his head, his eyes just squeezed shut, tears coming out of the side. It's just, you could tell he's leaning into some truth, some hope that was more real to him than even his ALS. In fact, he just bought a brand new TV for his bedroom, so he's probably watching us right now with that big TV. So Justin, love the TV. It was so good seeing you and your faith and your courage was such an inspiration. And thank you for giving me the honor of baptizing you. So for the guy who unraveled DNA, he found that in this code was what he called the language of God. So let me walk you into the, the DNA for a moment. Let's just talk a little bit about what's in this language of life. So when they unscrambled a piece of DNA, when they began to look at all the different pieces, parts that are in there, they found, number one, this is unbelievable data storage. You think about all the places that companies store their data, all the information that's put in these giant warehouses. This is the most efficient data storage system ever found in the universe. It can house terabytes upon terabytes upon terabytes of, of data in a space so small we can only see it with an electron microscope. Not only is it a data storage system, this is incredibly diverse and complex data that's stored there. It's like how one might build a heart, how one might build an eye. In animals, how one builds a beak, why, why the, the, the bird's uh, bones are hollow, that way they can fly because they're less weighty than the mammals that may be full. All of the details of all those pieces are in data storage here. But more than that, it's also filled with information. And remember what I said? Information always comes from a mind. If I pulled out the Wall Street Journal and I showed you a page of it, I would say this is information and it came from a mind. And you might say, no, 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 no. Information, I can tell you exactly where the Wall Street Journal came from. And you could explain the chemistry of, of ink, how ink got there. Okay, well, that explains the ink. You could explain the, the mechanics of, of the press back in the days of the press. Okay, that's true. You could explain the geometry of, of the letter A that's at a certain percentage angle. Okay, yeah, that geometry is true and that chemistry is true, but it doesn't explain the information. Some mind wrote that story, wrote that information. Information always comes from a mind. And chemistry is awesome and biology is awesome, but it doesn't explain the information behind it all. This is an incredible software system that's been built into you and built into me. Everything your cell needs to know, everything to, to build a wing that can actually fly, everything about your eye, everything about your ear and all of its components and all the bones, it's all built into this information using a chemical language using only four letters. Again, like I said, my son-in-law is a coder. You get one letter wrong and the whole thing screws up and we all are on our website and it's like, oh, why is this thing not working? Some coder's got to go in, find the one letter, the one dash, the one dollar sign, whatever it is that screwed it up. And here is the most complicated data storage, data processing system that's ever been discovered to which you say, well, yeah, 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 but it's possible that given enough time and given enough chance, this could have made itself. 
Anything's possible. But mathematicians have, have theorized that if you had a universe filled with monkeys, the only thing you had was monkeys in the universe, and if every monkey had a typewriter, and they had infinite time, that monkeys pounding on typewriters for infinite amount of time would never be able to print or make up the assembly of, of words to give us Shakespeare's sonnets or plays. And Shakespeare, as beautiful and as wonderful and as complex as it is, is nothing compared to the blueprints buried into the DNA. Imagine every blueprint for everything ever created can fit into a teaspoon in front of you. An amazing display of data. And if all that is there to teach a salmon how to go, to teach a butterfly where to fly, to, to have a heart pump so you can stay alive, you would say, this isn't just information, this is loving information because somebody designed this to make me alive, to keep me alive. How about lastly? Let's look what's inside your cells. <laughs> God is also the first craftsman because you've been crafted in love and joy and therefore you've been crafted for the purpose of love and joy. I sat down with a couple different scientists and, and, and medical doctors a couple months ago as I was planning this series, and they had obviously an expertise in, in these fields. And, and I began to just discuss the idea of, of how God delights in us and, and how wisdom might be in us in our bloodstream. I guess go back to that verse in, in, in uh, Proverbs that I, I mentioned to you. Here's what it says. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I was beside him as a master craftsman. Wisdom says I was the master craftsman that put together your DNA and your body. And Jesus will later show up and say, hey, I am the Logos who did that. I am the wisdom spoke about. And look what it says. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. In every philosophy and religion, the gods create mankind out of anger or lust or somebody to push around because they need some worship. Not in the Bible. In the Bible, you see God creating out of delight and joy. God loves making things. God wants to share his joy and delight. So this is such a unique vision through philosophy and history, that there's a God from the Bible, Christianity, who loved making us. He delighted in making us. We were made in love and joy, and we're made for love and joy. And you can see that even in your bloodstream. I was talking to my friend, the medical doctor, uh, this week, and he said, uh, I said, well, let me see if this is an example. Just how your blood clots is unbelievable to me. I liken it to a, to a hot tub. Imagine a hot tub as your skin on the outside and it's filled with your blood in the inside. I say, you know, when, when you, you, you poke yourself, like you poke a big hole in the side of the hot tub, water's gushing out, and, and think maybe the, the hot tub's filled with leaves. I always thought that maybe it's just a pure siphon of water pouring out, those leaves kind of hit each other and clogged it all up. He's like, no, that's not how it works at all. Did I mention my liberal arts education? I said, how does it work? He said, when your body gets poked or stabbed, immediately the body communicates in the bloodstream to everything around it. I said, you mean the nervous system for the pain? He's like, no, no, not the nervous system. He said, your blood has phone lines running through it, a biochemical phone line. So the minute your skin gets poked, that hole in the hot tub, the, the water itself communicates to all the pieces around it, and 10 different components have to come together in your bloodstream, and 10 different components, like epoxy glue needs two pieces. You need 10 different pieces for the blood to come together and, 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 and form what ultimately comes a cloth that begins to fill or cover the platelets and all the other pieces to clog your, your, your body to, to heal it. 
More than that, the minute you stab yourself, the, the, the tissue around the opening begins to zip itself up. It begins to shrink itself to make it easier while those 10 chemicals are coming together. And the 10 chemicals that are nearby that started to put it together, they put out phone calls to the rest of your bloodstream through the bloodstream biochemically and say, hey, we need some more over there. Everybody that's needed, more 10 components from all of your bloodstream comes to patch that hole. And if you've ever tried to do drywall work and trying to get rid of those seams, imagine your blood clot, or your, not blood clot, your blood platelet, You've got to somehow, without having any objective view from the outside, you've got to somehow make that piece of your skin, that pore, that spot, look like it did before. Look at the artistry of how hard it is to put drywall flat, let alone to recreate a pore and recreate a hair and recreate those pieces. It's freaking from the inside and from the outside. I think that's probably why Niels Stanson in 1630, he was an agnostic, he was a doubter, but he was known for his anatomy. He studied anatomy, and he just did not believe in God and did not believe in, in the whole message of God. But he was an anatomist, and he loved studying the human body. And specifically, he loved studying the human circulatory system. In fact, you can thank him today because he discovered our salivary gland. And as he began to study and look at the, the chemicals and the intricacies and the way our blood system could bring air in, bring oxygen in and take carbon dioxide out, he as a scientist and as a doctor said, there's just no way this could possibly have happened without a craftsman. There is someone who has put my very body together. And as a man of medicine and science, by studying the anatomy and the bloodstreams of the human body, he became a follower in God and eventually a follower in Jesus Christ. So, how about for you? What would it look like you if... if, if if my premise is true, or if my premise is half true, or if it's even plausibly true, what would it look like to trust God as your master craftsman? To say, God, what is my purpose? If you've got eight million engines running through every little cross-section of hair, they got a purpose. If you've got a purpose for something so small, and Jesus says in one of his sermons that God knows the hairs on your head, which means he knows the eight million cross-sections of it, God, I want to trust you and the wisdom you have for my life. God, what might my purpose be? And what does it look like to live out that purpose? And God, I've looked for truth in a lot of places, but I'm seeing so much truth in my body, I'm open to your truth for my life and for my body. What does it look like when you're worried or when you're scared or when you're overwhelmed or when you're successful? What does it look like to allow the truth of how to enjoy that success without letting it take over your life? What would it look like for you to trust God for the truth in your life? And what if the same God who put love in your life, who delighted when he made you, delighted and created you in delight, and you can see that because our, our bodies, our relationships work best in the context of love, what would it look like to begin to learn about a new kind of love? A love that God might come from heaven to earth to die for us. A love that is so incredible, he died for his enemies. I can love my friends most of the time, but your enemies pounding stakes in your hands and feet? I want to know about that kind of love. So in your journey, I got a chance to talk to my friend Chuck. And I'd like you to hear Chuck's story of how he learned to trust the master craftsman in his life as a scientist. Let's watch. I grew up in uh, upstate New York and uh, in the Episcopal Church. We were the Sunday Christians. Um, Christianity was never a central tenant of my upbringing. 
I was always fascinated with science. Um, you know, I was the kid that always asked that the next question on the why or the how or, or the what ifs in science. And uh, as a result of that, I ended up going to the State University of New York at Stony Brook um, to study science. And I studied as many, you know, took as many courses as I possibly could in, you know, chemistry and physics and biochemistry, et cetera. I also took some courses in religion. I got a bachelor's degree in biochemistry. I ended up with uh, tons of credits in science and went straight on to a doctoral program at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. By the time I had gotten my PhD in biochemistry, I, I was a solid atheist, and, and I was even more convinced that science had all the answers and that there was really no need for divine intervention in any of this, and that evolution was truly the basis for the existence of life. During my dissertation case, I uh, stumbled on this, this woman, my future wife, Nina, who was a Christian. She's Indian and comes from the southern tip of India. And she's, Christianity runs deep in her, her family. Uh, her family was evangelized originally by St. Thomas, who, uh, the, the disciple of Christ, who came to southern India um, to spread the gospel. And so she's, her family has been Christian for many, many years. She ended up going out to Oregon with her advisor. She has a PhD in neuromolecular biology. Lots of fun dinner conversations. Um, but, you know, so after I finished my dissertation, I made a beeline for Oregon to go be with her. Uh, so by the time I get to Oregon, she's already, you know, invested in a church. She's going to church. And, and I started going to church with her. But that had me, more to do with me and my interest in her than my interest in, in Christianity. Around that time, I had read a book by a famous English chemist, P.W. Atkins. The book was The Creation. And he has a quote in there, a great deal of the universe does not need any explanation. Elephants, for example, once molecules have learned to compete and create other molecules in their own image, elephants and things resembling elephants will in due course be roaming around the countryside. The details of the processes involved in evolution, they're fascinating, but they're unimportant. It just struck me that how could they be unimportant? As a scientist, evolution is a, is a scientific theory. And in order to be able to prove a theory, you have to examine the scientific processes. And I realized that you have to evaluate the processes from a scientific perspective. Otherwise, there, this is nothing more than another form of faith. So there I was as a scientist, um, recognizing that you know, the, we can't prove evolution and that evolution is this uh, another theological framework that requires as much faith. So, I decided that you know perhaps I should give the other side a chance and read the uh, read the Bible. So I decided to read the Bible, cover to cover, and uh, two chapters every night. That's what I did, and uh, eventually at at one point I got to Romans five three three through five, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So by the end of that sentence, I knew I was a Christian. I'm not sure why that, those verses were important to me at that time, but I knew. And I knew that I was forgiven. I knew that uh, Christ was my Savior at that particular point. And as I continued to read the Bible and read through the Bible, at some point I realized that 
you know, it's easy to get a billion people to die for something that they believe to be believed to be true. It's impossible to get one good man to die for what he knows to be a lie. And I believe that the disciples, the 12 of them, were evidence of Christ's life as they moved forward. And I believe that my wife is, you know, the result of that is she, her family was evangelized in India, you know, centuries ago, decades, millennia ago. The evolution piece of, of science, it's the faith part of this. You have to believe that molecules can learn to compete and create, uh, you know, mo other molecules in their own image, or you can believe that um, God created us in his image. And uh, that's how I came to Christ.